This is Mike Madrid. And this is Gregory Rodriguez. We're your hosts for Americanata, where we'll be exploring the intersection of race, class, culture, and politics during a time of extraordinary change. We'll be thinking out loud and processing what's on our minds as we go, unfiltered. And we're looking forward to you joining us for this discussion as we explore how we got to this tumultuous moment in the United States. Gregory, do you want to start this one off? You want to talk about well, the social network? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we had to stop last time and you were about to talk about your upbringing, a uh, Mexican-American kid in a, in a rapidly anglicizing, if, if you will, uh, uh, area of Ventura County. And and we promised to go back to that subject. And I think I think I would what I would love to hear it. I think others would love to hear your experience as as a kid, and what it taught you about ethnic networks and networks altogether. That that uh, and that knowledge and how it plays into into your work as as political strategist. Yeah, I, it's probably a more interesting story than I realized because I think it does explain my work and the work that I got involved with. So, you know, 1971, my family, um, my parents were young, uh, really young parents, early 20s. I was the second child on the way. And my father literally drove from Echo Park in, you know, the heart of Los Angeles um, on a lunch break to the end of the freeway, the end of the 118, as far out as he could looking for a home that they could afford, you know, young Mexican family trying to make it. And they, they ended up in a little dusty agricultural town called Moore Park up in Ventura County, which is the northernmost county in Southern California. It's right above LA County. It was a town of, a, of less than 3,500 people in 1971. And it was wow. predominant, predominantly Mexican-American. Again, agricultural community. The name Moore Park comes from the Moore Park apricot. It was all apricot orchards at the time. And um, it was literally the end of the freeway. And so he put in an offer on a house that they could afford in a new tract subdivision, the first one that was kind of going into this area. And the trajectory of my life going through high school was um, watching the 1980s suburban sprawl, <laughs> a tract home by tract home happening around me and becoming more white and wealthy around me. You know, I was kind of born and raised into a kind of a small lower middle class Mexican community and our networks were the Catholic church. And I was an altar boy and went to, you know, CCD and, um, you know, so were all of my friends, but every year as the classes would get bigger, the community would become wealthier and whiter around us. And so, so navigating these new friends networks, which, you know, it was, it was becoming more Republican, <laughs> frankly, around me. And I, I was very at home and comfortable in uh, in in my you know Mexican American home, Democratic family, you know Catholic, very stereotypical textbook, um, agricultural, with a suburban white Republican community growing around it. By the time I graduated from high school, Moorpark was a town of about thirty-five thousand people and about eighty percent white. So, so let me let, let me dig in a little bit. So, you you talk about being comfortable in both, but were there moments in which they were in competition for your heart and soul, if you will? Were there moments in which you felt pulled to one or the other, or that uh, that that each network, if you will, to, but for lack of a better word, were at odds at any of at any of the time that when you were a kid? 
Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as I'm staring down my 50th year of life here, I'm gonna change that around. I, I think I was uncomfortable in both. It wasn't that I was comfortable in both; I was uncomfortable in both, and kind of had to learn to navigate both of those worlds. As I, you know, as I was going to school, and as my friend network became more white and wealthier, there was obviously the, you know, the the worries and fears of that of not having what my friends had and having a much you know, smaller house and older cars and older clothes. And, you know, we were living paycheck to paycheck, my family. And so there was always that kind of fear, that sort of, you know, shame that's there. And, and then, you know, when my friend networks would kind of cross worlds, it was sort of this sense of, are you really, are you really one of us still? Are you still really Mexican? Are you still really, um, you know, who are you? And, and I just never really felt I, I, it's hard to explain. I think I both felt very comfortable in both worlds, but very uncomfortable in both worlds at the same time. Well, well, you said that you, 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 there were times when you felt perhaps not belonging to your Mexican side. Were there yeah. times in which you were made uh, or otherwise felt not to belong in what you call the white side? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you, do you, do you have any uh, memories of? Oh yeah. I mean, there, I mean, it's everything from, you know, uh, you know, white girlfriends that I would have and meeting the parents and a, a very keen awareness that, Oh, you know, your last name's Madrid. Um, you know, where are you from? <laughs> um, you know, uh, kind of asking kind of more questions really like, well, where are your folks from? you know, and knowing what those questions were and what they meant. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a real, remember my high school girlfriend specifically, there was just a real discomfort with her father specifically, who was just like, yeah, I think, I don't think this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it was pretty overt. I mean, he made it, he made it pretty clear. So, so you, so you believe that this having to navigate between these two worlds uh, gave you a particular insight into how networks work. Yeah. In fact, I kind of made a life out of it. I made a profession out of it. I mean, yes, I had to learn how to navigate those worlds and they were pretty distinct and, and disparate worlds. To me, they're, they're, they're a lot more, uh, there's a lot more in common, but maybe it's just because I built that, that sense around me because I needed it, but look, how else can you become a, a you know, a, Republican political professional who's, you know, operated at pretty high level in the Republican politics and at the same time be an expert in Latino messaging and Latino politicization and Latino acculturation issues. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty, yeah. Yeah. pretty peculiar skill set. It made perfect sense to me. That was just because that was my life. But in many ways, I just found a profession that allowed me to continue to navigate everything that I had to during my childhood and my high school years, just kind of a continuation of, 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 of moving through these worlds and weaving, weaving through these networks and understanding the motivating um, dynamics behind each and trying to reconcile them. Wow. That's not, go ahead. Not very successful. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think I'm, I'm very well, I, I up until recently, but until Lincoln project work, I was very well respected in Republican politics and my work in Republican politics. And, you know, now I'm, I'm viewed as kind of a, you know, a, a, you know, betraying the cause, but in Latino, you know, circles too, I was always viewed as kind of an anomaly because I understood it extraordinarily well as a national expert on this, but I was a Republican. 
And so both yeah. people, both groups still, it's very similar to be like, oh yeah, Mike, he's very respected. He's very talented. He's good at what he does, but some, it's just a little bit strange. Like, how can you be a Latino Republican? And I would get that with my, my Mexican American social networks a lot too, is you're Republican, you know, vendido, you're sellout. You know, you're really one of us. Are you really down with the cause? Are you really, can you really speak on behalf of the community? And, um, and then I would get, you know, from, from white friends and Republican circles, well, you're not, you're not like really a Mexican. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there's this kind of acknowledgement that, that, you know, in both groups that I was not really fully one of them. Right. You didn't completely buy the orthodoxy. So you're not really completely one of us. Right. Right. Exactly. So you found yourself in the middle and you found yourself on both sides and on neither side. And you you navigated the middle in some way without really knowing it, right? Um, if, if I may, uh, we, we have similar stories. They're mm -hmm. different in fundamental ways. But yeah. I, I took that being between as not really wanting to belong to anything. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, um, and I had a third, there was a real, uh, 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 there was a real another dynamic going on in, in the world I grew up in Southern California, which was mass immigration to the suburb that my parents had moved in to two months before I was born. Mm. So, so we had uh, massive immigration from, um, from, from Korea, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Iran, uh, from Lebanon. And so, whereas you grew up in that bifurcated world, I was suddenly a Mexican American in a town becoming heavily Armenian. And it was really interesting. And the differences between my elder siblings, they had more of a white uh, uh, Mexican-American experience. I had I had the buffers. I have this, these other people coming in. My first girlfriend ever was, was ethnically Chinese from Panama. Uh, my second girlfriend was hmm. Vietnamese. Uh, you know, I, I once wrote a column that my entire love life was 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 at some point created by American foreign policy. That, that these, these <laughs> so, I love that. And I married a German woman who's you know who, who these all of these families had access to the United States, had visas to the United States because of America military involvement in their countries. <laughs> oh, and so so I so so I um, it's it's really interesting. So my first girlfriend again was Spanish speaking. Uh, in, in a in, in a sort of a, a polyglot high school in which you know the whites were sort of hierarchically on top, and I remember I became class president in junior year, mm. and I had a Chinese Panamanian girlfriend, and I was talking to my aunt today, remembering like you know a junior I had you know, class presidents their job is really to put on dances right, mm -hmm. so we you know, put on a dance, and there's one song that I promised my then girlfriend my high school girlfriend we did we we did in Spanish. And it was oh, some wow. cheese. It was a cheesy ass Julio Iglesias song. I shouldn't be telling this publicly. And then um, we we did we did we we were dancing, and it was in the middle of the quad of the high school, and everybody moved to the side. We were the only ones in the middle. So, but but it, huh. it, I, but I felt sort of in, I felt I felt empowered by it. There was there was another side. I didn't have to give in to sort of the to the dominant of, of dominance of whites and some life. There there were other people I could go to. There were other voices. There were other histories. And so I found 
Um, and then in, in, when I was 14, I moved to Spain. Uh, I, I had an aunt who, who moved to Spain and married a Spaniard and I was an unhappy adolescent. And I said, can I ask my parents, can I go live with her? And I literally, I think I had met her twice before and oh. I came back from Spain and I was completely lost. I literally, I, I, I didn't have any friends. And I sat in the cafeteria where all the sort of all the refugee kids and who had free lunches and I, that and that was my reintegration into suburban Southern California life is through the immigrant kids. Um, and then I ran for and then a Chinese uh, an ethnic Chinese uh, guy from Thailand, uh, an odd character who came to came to school in suits. And he lived in a mansion by himself. He was one of those kids that his parents had put him in a mansion and they mm -hmm. were back in Thailand. And he came up to me in the, in the cafeteria and he said, do you want to be class president? Dude, he was like Karl Rove. He yeah. was like high school Karl Rove. <laughs> and I said, no, why the hell would I want to do that? No. <laughs> and so, um, so it was kind of cool. That was my, my upbringing. And so, but, but, but to get back to you, one more thing to get before I get back to you is I felt I could see, the, and that's, this really informed how I saw things, that once there was a critical mass of Armenians, that whatever discrimination and prejudice, for instance, in ninth grade, one of the formative things in my life, I was called the N-word. That was a big deal for me. My father had to go to the school and tell the parents, the fathers of the kids who called me the N-word. And this is big. This really resonates yeah. in my head way too much. Um, or perhaps not. And then when I became class president, I was called, you know, all sorts of things. But... But then when the, when the Armenians became more dominant and they became the more threatening of the minorities to Anglos, then Mexican-Americans were kind of like, cool. So I saw the dynamics of changing alliances very, just as a mm. kid, like you, know, you learn how to negotiate. I saw the dynamics of, hey, we're not, we're not the bad guys anymore. We're not the, you know, the, 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 the defining other, as they say. And so we were sort of honorary. Isn't that interesting? We're less foreign, less threatening. Yeah, which made you an honorary white. I mean, not, look. But hold on, hold on. Not yeah. really. Again, there wasn't, it wasn't binary. Yeah, but it was an alliance, right? If they had to choose somebody to make you okay, a little bit more okay, a little bit more acceptable, you you would pass oh, more than somebody who's understood. Armenian. But but understood. But I wouldn't say go so far as white. They weren't as dominant to be able to determine everyone's identity and the way they would in a white black white, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a sort of a white slash non white situation. Does that make sense? It was it was more of. A, yeah, they were, they were also losing. They were also losing. So they were also losing competitively academically. So the advanced classes in which I was placed, the mm. white kids were not the dominant groups. Yeah, they were Korean. Yeah, you see what I mean? And, and so 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 I so I don't want to say you were an honorary white because that, that they were their status was actually this is why I sort of understood declining white status. I grew up within it. So what happened? What, what go ahead. Look what I what um, what we were experiencing in Southern California in the eighties, late seventies and eighties, is is so much of what is happening in the rest of the country today. And for us, it was just survival. It was just kids surviving through different ethnic bands and different racial groups that were kind of immigrating and developing and growing and shrinking. I always thought it was very unique that I was somebody who was in a Mexican-American community that was becoming more white when there were so many white suburbs 
that were becoming more Latino, more, more Hispanic in the 80s, right? It was happening in reverse for me because the immigration waves really began after, after IRCA and after 86, or at least in the, in, the, in the early 80s, right? This is when this all started and then really exploded in the 90s is in our living memory, of course, I'm not going to go go way back to in the way back yeah. machine 100 years ago, but but in living memory, you had a, a generally white Beach Boys dominant society in Southern California, which was becoming browner. This Latinization of California that was happening. Yours was far more far more um, diverse. It was far more um, unique, where you had different um, ethnicities for various economic and political reasons coming to exactly. your community and so it was much more and again i hate to use the word balkanized but it was much more no, balkanized no it wasn't balkanized at all that's just that that's a, that's the most overused right-wing word in our lifetime it wasn't okay. balkanized at all it was we were all going out with each other and when you said i, I was struck when you said honorary white no i wasn't honorary white because i didn't want to be white i was honorary asian the kids i studied with at the library downtown were all asian and the the winning team if winning for uh, a kid in advanced class is academic success or wanting to get into a good college, you wanted to be honorary Asian. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who ended up, a very good friend of mine who ended up uh, go, uh, uh, dropping out of high school. He actually was going out with a Chinese American girl whose parents forbid her from going out with her. Mm. My Panamanian Chinese uh, girlfriend in high school, her, her father born in Cuba actually didn't want her going out with me. So the rejection didn't come the visceral intimate rejection. The direction came from whites in all sorts of other ways, but the visceral integral int intimate rejection came from other non-whites, right? An Armenian, an Armenian girl wouldn't go out with a Mexican American. So again, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't binary and you were, and you said it right. It was like all these other bands and alliances that, that but what happened was, is we were all together. We were all suburban Americans. Like what the exclusion of is African-American kids never lasted at these schools. They came in and they left. So I thought that what was happening is the opposite of balkanization. It was actually a melding. Okay, if my first girlfriend, my first date ever was a Chinese Mexican girl to, mm. to, uh, to uh, uh, homecoming. Um, my, my, my second date was a, a daughter of a Korean pastor, immigrant pastor. And so it was the opposite. It, I felt extremely comfortable mm. with people from all these places because they were suburban Southern Californians like I were. The, 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 and that's when I, when I went into, when I started writing about this stuff many years ago, I realized that the way that civic life is set up that the X group and the Y group and the E group and the D group, that actually it was falling way behind the, the integrated suburban lives, the way actually people live. As kids, we didn't, we didn't separate. We were distinct. We had different identities and, and trajectories and origins, but we were in the same classes and we went out with them. The only real barriers I felt were from the Armenian kids. I could never go out with Armenians. Um, that was Why was that? I, I can't speak for them, but I think they were, they, 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 one, they were coming in large masses from uh, former communist countries and, and they did stick, to, stick together and, 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 and they weren't in the same class as I was either. And, and they, they, they were very, um, I don't know, I, I can't, I spent, but, it, but it was very distinct from them. And when we had a 20, 20 year anniversary or reunion, there was not one Armenian kid who came to the-, the Interesting. So I think they had a, I think they had separate 
separate networks unto themselves. It was a much more isolated community. It seems so, even though within them there were those from Lebanon, those from Iran, and those from the Soviet Armenia. But but th- th- yeah, it seemed to to have its own depth and breadth, and it didn't need the rest of us. But yeah, as a suburban Southern California, I grew up with people from all over the world, and I saw how the power structures worked. And I saw whites in decline from the very, dude, the first time I always saw a white kid, I, I ever even remember his name, talk about starting a white club was in high wow. school. Huh? This was, this was all of this, all of this was inevitable, but began because he wasn't in advanced classes because he wasn't going to go to a fancy school that he was resentful of the Korean kids uh, and some Chinese kids who, that we didn't have that many Chinese that, that went to the, 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 the upper crest schools. And so if I wanted to get ahead, that's who I hung out with. And that's who I did. And those are all the, the first, you know, the first young women I ever dated were all of Asian background of different sorts. So th- this is, this actually explains a lot. This is, this is helpful for me. It's the first time I've heard of this. We've been friends for, you know, 20 years or so now. W- where I grew up, white whites were very much on the ascendancy. Ah, wow. Right? Whites, every tract home was getting bigger. The square footage of each house was getting larger. The average annual income was going up around this small little Mexican community. And it was becoming a wealthy white community around me. And so... It was it was a remarkably uh, monolithic community. There was there were I had Asian friends for sure. I had a handful of black friends, but overwhelmingly it was a white community getting whiter in a place in California and in the country that was getting dramatically more diverse. And it had a lot to do with um, income and class. I mean, candidly, right? These were not immigrant families by any stretch of the imagination. My immigrant experience came a little bit later when when immigrants started to move into these communities to serve as the the service economy for for these households, the janitors, the the servant class, essentially, right? But but my whole experience was watching my Mexican community shrink and becoming more um, isolated from the broader community wow. in a town that was its own. And so maybe that, that does explain some of my own trajectory, my own perception about where I wanted to be and what I was doing and how I was associating it in the networks Absolutely. that I was relying on, mm-hmm. but it was becoming, and there was a direct correlation between a growing white community and a growing wealthy community. Right. We essentially moved there in 19, the early 1970s with other poor Mexican families, poor working class Mexican families and it, from that, from the moment we got there, it immediately started rapidly demographically changing around me. So every year became very distinct and very different. I, I have no false illusions about how this was a completely different experience than what what was happening in the rest of Southern California at this time. Mm-hmm. I, I it's it's really I, I, this is actually I, I'll, I'll venture to guess that some of the people who were leaving the, the town that I'm from, Glendale were some of those who arrived in uh, in Moore Park. Because what happened with the mm-hmm. whites where I grew up, the, 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 the more working class and lower middle class tended to leave yeah. up to Santa Clarita, uh, out, out to, to the Inland Empire, to, to Ventura County. And so the more highly competitive within this market, however you say these terms, tended to integrate better. So again, those who could compete with the new 
non-whites coming in could stay. They married yes. each other. Yeah. And the whites who couldn't compete, who felt left. pushed out by them, left. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I mean, this is a bigger story. And this is for some unknown reason no one's written this story. But when the when the Chandler family sold the Los Angeles Times, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever it was, that was a capitulation of 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 that that regime of whites that once dominated Southern California and they left. And that's the real, you know, we talk about immigration being new and immigration is obviously as almost at a standstill right now to Southern, mm -hmm. Southern as it has been for a long time. But the real story to me, the hidden story is the departure of the whites who could not compete. And I think, and, and they went to, to places with, uh, I wonder what a house costs. Do you remember what, the, what your parents, do you know what your parents paid for the house they bought? In 1971? Yeah. About $45,000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mid forties. And so it was a stretch, you know, for them. My dad had just come back from Vietnam, did not have a college degree. My mom stayed at home for the first few years with us. He was actually working um, at a retail bank. Um, I wouldn't call him, you know, um, he was in the banking industry. He wasn't running the bank. Um, but, you know, you could afford in California a new little suburban tract home. It was, you know, very small. It was probably a thousand square feet, maybe 1,100. Yeah. Um, but we started to witness, again, this the McMansionization of the community. And it was largely yeah. because it was agricultural open space where you could commute into Los Angeles, to your point. You could you could have be a professional in Los Angeles and drive out to this bedroom community. There was nothing to do in suburban Moorpark in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. Like nothing to do. There weren't even fast food restaurants. <laughs> so there was you know the town was we would say 30,000 during the during at night when everyone was sleeping. It was a town of 5,000 when everybody left right. to go work right. during the day. Right. But again, where there was interaction with my classmates. It was increasingly wealthier, whiter families with increasingly larger homes. The, the other dynamic, uh, my parents bought a house in the mid 60s. I, I don't know, it was like $30,000, $40,000, but it was three story 1920s Spanish style stuck. It was gorgeous. The house I grew up in was, it was extraordinarily beautiful. And I was, and so the other thing that happened was that, that Glendale then became a, a the, the DreamWorks was built at some point. In, in the corner of Glendale and Burbank, and Hollywood, Hollywood jobs started to creep over the over the Griffith Park, over the hill, right? right? Or actually, they're they're in the Burbank. They're moving over more to Glendale, and so I knew from high school that I was downwardly mobile. <laughs> that that so that 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 the house that my parents bought for whatever you know amazingly low amount was already in a million dollars by the time I left town. I think now it's like two million. But isn't that interesting? So I yeah. knew I personally would never be, I would never want to make the compromises or the dedication to the jobs that would pay that much for me to be there. So I, isn't that, so I was, I, I was very, very conscious that I was downwardly mobile uh, because of the demographic changes uh, happening in, uh, in my neighborhood. Is that downwardly mobile though? When you can't afford the, the cost of a house you grew up in? Yeah. Or if you choose not to, right? It's kind of more what well, I'm I, saying. Well, for my pride, I'll say I chose not to. Right? <laughs> but, 
I chose but, to be downwardly mobile, <laughs> damn it. I, but there was just no way, you know. I mean, and then you start to realize that the, the people who, who who came of age in the post-war California years, they had a lot of structural advantages in their lives that we would not have. So look, I think what we're both articulating is kind of um, what I thought was a, a, um, a common experience of a rapidly diversifying place on the planet when we were growing up, but, but they're two unique experiences. And what has been fascinating for me has been the ability to, I guess, take all of this experience that I was navigating through my childhood and in, through my teen years up through college um, and being able to put it into practice as a yeah. political practitioner. But perhaps, you know, I wanted to be in California. I went to school back in Washington, D.C., and I knew right away I wanted to come back. That's when I reached out to you when you were writing about these dynamics 25 years ago. And I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to watch it unfold. I wanted to mm, wow. see how California was going to deal with this. We're now halfway through my career, and I'm being generous with myself here, but now it's coming to the rest of the country. And so the way that we grew up in Southern California, this most diverse spot in the country at the time, is now the experience of what is happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? And uh, suburban Atlanta. One of the things that doing, doing races in Georgia Everyone thinks, oh, it's all black and white. No, it's not. The South is in increasingly diverse with these new economy workers. Very significant, measurable Latino population, growing API, Asian Pacific Islander communities. You know, diversity when we were growing up meant black and white, right? And us Californians going, hey, wait a second, that's not really our experience, but we're not, you know, we're a little bit different than the southerners but we, but the we don't Coasters. determine what the news is it's we, but we don't determine what the news or the national narrative is so we just kind of felt like an outlier but this the the, the rapid diversification of the rust belt states and even the midwest absolutely the south the sun belt states are are diversifying dramatically and their, their politics are changing but society and culture is changing yeah, and, and I think, but, but it, it, that's all correct. I, I think what's important is that there's a political view of it, as you understand better than anyone. And then there's the actual lived experience and they're very different. Yeah. Uh, and as I said, you know, my upbringing was remarkably tolerant. Did I have, there, were there incidents? Absolutely, defining incidents in my life. But there were plenty of other, you know, you know, our brains work to remember the negative, right? To remember the hurt first. Mm -hmm. But they were remarkable amounts of, uh, uh, <clears throat> there were friendships made across racial and ethnic lines uh, that were very easy and and very 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 dear and very fond and um, and that was my upbringing too. And that is happening all over America. And again, when we talk. Uh, when, 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 especially the journalistic narrative is so full of blocks, everyone's part of a block. But when you're in a classroom and you like a boy or a girl across, you're not in a block. You, you're an individual who likes another individual. And that's how cultures collide. That's how cultures are made. And I, and I think we can't keep, we, we have to keep focus as much as we have to understand the, the, the political component. We have to keep focusing on, as you said, how, kids navigate the diverse areas that they live in and there's promise in that there is promise and there is but yeah I, there's there's something nagging my how much of this is a function of age 
Like it was, it was easy for you to be growing up when everybody was different. But what about the parents of those white kids that wanted to start a white club? Well, they went to, they went to uh, Ventura County. <laughs> they left. Yeah, 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 yeah. They left. Absolutely. As I'm saying, I, I, I was keeping it to, 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 to kids. And that, that's just the, how, the other way it was. And I would actually venture to say that it's the complicated, the complex nature of the, 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 actual, the ethnic quilt that I grew up in was easier for me to navigate than your more binary one. Does that make sense? There, there were, I- It was too complicated to be complex. It, it, <laughs> I, I really identify by my, by my book on mestizos, I identify as a mestizo. I identify as a mixed person who mm -hmm. comes and goes as one pleases, who belongs in many places and many places and it doesn't belong anywhere. And so I, that that was my experience, and um, right for right or wrong, and it was always it was, it's not really very accurate. My antenna were always up through life, saying who's who's foe, who's friend, and a lot of that was ethnically driven because of of where I came from. Isn't that mestizoness? Let's talk about this for a second, because this look, there's a certain malleability that I think we both grew up with. Or at least I did. Yeah, and I do too. It's a tremendous advantage when you understand how to use that network. And for me to be able to float in and out of white circles and float in and out of Mexican circles, again, I, I've characterized it by saying I was neither at home, I was neither comfortable nor uncomfortable in both worlds, but it's incredibly malleable in a way that Black people don't have the ability to move in the same circles that we did. Asian folks don't have those same um, that same um, flexibility, ethnic flexibility. There's something about Mexican identity, at least growing up in the time and age that we did, where we were able to kind of see more seamlessly go in and out of different networks and kind of read the room, understand the room, and have an understanding of how you could be more accepted, even though you would never be entirely accepted. Is that fair? I think it is fair. I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with the black and Asian uh, the, the, not being able to take advantage of it. But yes, essentially, essence because Asian Americans outmarry at, at very high numbers, for instance. Mm -hmm. So, but um, but I do agree that it's it's sort of essential. It's the essence of, of the mestizo experience is to find places to be, find find is to have no place of their own, but to find other places where they're accepted. But it it, it yes, a total advantage, but. Um, but there's a disadvantage with it too, because there's no full home. Yeah. There's, you know, look at it, look at it, look at it the other way. Uh, the sort of brotherhood that African-Americans have, can have with one another is something that I don't think I've ever had with. I have it in, on instances with Mexican-Americans, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the brotherhood of a shared centuries old experience, mm -hmm. uh, we don't have. You see what I mean? So, so it, it, it's, we're, we're one step in, one step out is sort of the mestizo mentality. And there are disadvantages of that as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think we both experienced that as well. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that you, I think you phrased it perfectly. It's, you're never fully at home. It, it's right. an advantage and a disadvantage. Right, right, right. And um, yeah. So what is this? Well, okay. Let me, let, let's, let, let me just ask one question. Um, I've got to ask the forward thinking question and then we'll call it quits here. What, what is this? 
is what America is experiencing now essentially what we were growing up with in the 70s and 80s in Southern California? Some parts of it, yes. I mean, we the, the national media uh, sort of exaggerates the diversification of America. It's not happening everywhere. It's happening in, in really key states. It's happening in the most populous states. Um, but it's not happening uh, in, in, uh, in other states. But um, yes, but I think our dialogue on race is so much more backwards than it was when we grew up. I think... The notion, you know, the, even the the notion of cultural appropriation. I don't really pay attention to it, but the notion that you can't borrow from somebody else is absurd. Uh, so the way we talk about it in blocks, as if everyone's part of this, you know, this one membership group, is we've gone backwards to that extent. But um, but yes, I I, I hope uh, I, I and I don't think the national narrative can ruin how people live per se. It can ruin your college experience, maybe. <laughs> but but um, but yeah yeah I I I think people will grow up and find alliances based on attraction, uh, like they've always done throughout history, um, and 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 it won't be written by by uh, by treaty or by decree or by political ideology, that. Uh, people will cross all sorts of lines and create new things. Um, but that's, but that's America. That's the best of America. That's the best of it's always been. Um, and I, I hopefully, you know, I, I think, yes, uh, that will continue to happen. Whereas a place like LA or California, for instance, I think in the last 10 years, California for the first time in its history as a state of the union was more native born than not, mm -hmm. uh, Californians are becoming more like each other. California is becoming less dynamic. California has become, it's becoming a native born state. Um, and so yes, places where newcomers are coming and molding, melding, and are, first of all, colliding and then combining with each other mm. is what we went through and is what the best of America went through. And yes, you're right. That's what, that's what much of the, the country will be experiencing. Colliding and combining. Gregory, thanks. Good talk. Let's visit again next week. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Thanks again for visiting with Gregory Rodriguez and Mike Madrid on this episode of Americanata. If you've enjoyed the discussion, please help us out. Share, review, and give us five stars. We'll talk to you next episode.